Uh, oh, wow. There we go. We're going to go ahead and uh, get started. And before, uh, before I jump into the sermon for this morning, I, uh, I have a correction for something that I said last week in my sermon. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow. Now everyone's paying attention, right? Start <laughs> that way more often. Uh, I used an illustration last week about a cartoon character named Homestar Runner. And I told you that my wife did not find any of those cartoons funny. And I got home and she said, that's not true. I think that they're funny sometimes. So <laughs> just know I have somebody keeping me honest for my illustrations at home. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so throughout this last month and, and here in this first week of February, we've been talking about the vision of our congregation, right? And we've been saying this a bunch of different ways, but we've been talking about how the vision that, we're t- that we want to be talking about here as a community is a vision that would be big enough for you to give your life away to. And so I've got some vision statements uh, from, from some corporations in our world. These are from Fortune 500 companies, and I'm going to have you guys guess, uh, guess who they're from, okay? I wish I had brought prizes, but I did not do that, so. Uh, this vision statement, it says, to be the world's most consumer-centric company. Amazon, wow. Yes, Amazon, nice. Uh, To bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. Nike. Maybe you guys just spend more time with these corporate vision statements than I do, but I think there the athlete was the giveaway. Okay. Uh, We will help people live longer, healthier, happier lives. No. Good, great guess. Pfizer, no? Finally, a stumper. Okay, CVS. Is that? Oh, yeah. You're like, of course. I do feel happier when I leave CVS. Uh, and this one, I think, is the most, is the most. Uh, to make people happy. <laughs> Good guess? No? All of them? Disney. Yes, that's Disney's motto, to make people happy. Uh, right, so we've got these, these companies who are putting out these, these laser-focused uh, well, they, I guess they're supposed to be laser-focused, white rays of describing who they are and what they're about. Putting uh, what can also feel like a positive spin on their business, right? And they're helpful, right, as, as, as far as things go. But are those things worth, are those vision statements worth giving your life away to? Because that's what we're talking about, Right? something that you could say, I have lived my life in light of this vision, and that when I get to the end of my life, I could say it's worth it. That we would have a vision that is uh, consuming and encompassing, that can cover every area of our lives. And that when we hear these vision statements from these Fortune 500 companies, we're talking about companies that are, well, Amazon, a few decades old, some that are 50 years old. How old is Disney? Maybe 100 years. They're a flash in the pan. They come and they go. Something that's that transient is not something worth giving your life to because it fades. So what we've been talking about is what would it look like for us as a community to discover uh, a vision for our lives as individuals, for our lives together, that's worth it, that, that would last. And that what we believe here is that we find that in the pages of Scripture. 
that this is a vision that's outlasted uh, any company, every country, that stretches back not just 2,000 years, but for, but for centuries, millennia beyond that. That that's the vision that we are bending our lives toward. A vision that by definition is unchanging. And that's been revealed to us by God and made flesh in Jesus Christ, the revelation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, right? And so over the course of the last few weeks we've been talking about, first we looked at just who is Christ? Then we talked about what does it look like to proclaim Christ through the gospel, to proclaim him to ourselves and to the world around us? What does it look like then to be devoted to Christ? That we'd be a worshiping and a witnessing community. Right, last week we talked about what it looks like to invite others to Christ as we are invited that we'd be a community that would say, come and see. Come and see this Jesus who's changed us. And this morning, where we're going to be ending our vision, our vision series is going to be talking about what it looks like to love like Christ. That we'd be a community that, that's loved by and defined by the way that we love our community with the love of Christ. So Shannon Cole is going to come up. Shannon's going to read our scripture for us this morning. And it is out of Jeremiah 29. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 14. And if you don't have uh, your Bible with you, it will be up on the screen. So you can follow along Follow along there. Hello? Is it? Okay. Yeah. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For, no, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from whence I have sent you into exile. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you uh, desire to speak to us this morning. We trust that and ask that as we uh, unfold this passage, Lord, that you would be showing us what it looks like, what it means to be people who are loved by you and who uh, can love the world through that love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You gotta be asking, right, why this passage if we're gonna be preaching about uh, the love of God? And, and loving our world with the love of Jesus Christ. Like, I thought we left all of those hard-sounding names behind when we finished the book of Nehemiah, right? Why not just preach on uh, the greatest commandment, love that, that Jesus gives us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? I thought about that. Uh, and decided not, not to preach from that passage this morning. And, and part of the reason for that is that Jesus' words there, his command to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, that's good and true and so important for us. That's really what we're going to be unfolding this morning. But that's a command that has become kind of so, uh, so a part of the way that our culture thinks about and talks about religion that it's almost lost any kind of meaning for us. That loving our neighbor as ourselves can just be another way of saying, be polite or be nice people. And when Jesus is encouraging us to love, when he's commanding us to love our neighbors as ourselves, he's commanding so much more than that. And I think this passage in Jeremiah kind of helps flesh that out for us because it grounds us in our identity as exiles in this world. So we're going to talk about that. What does it mean for us to be exiles? And we're going to talk about three different responses uh, to living in exile that we see in this passage. So exile, living in exile, and then what it looks like to be a people who are loving uh, loving like Christ in the midst of our exile. So that's where we're going this morning. If you're a note-taking person, those are the three points. Exile, our responses to exile, and loving in the midst of our exile. Okay, so this word exile, it appears uh, at least six times in this passage that we're in this morning. It's an important word, and I know what you're all thinking of, right, is survivor. Yes. No, no one is thinking of that. You guys know that I love survivor, but... Uh, <laughs> We won't go into Survivor too much. There's this place on, ex, uh, on Survivor called Exile Island where you get sent to be by yourself and you get separated from the rest of your tribe. And it's this place that nobody wants to go in the game for a lot of reasons. One of them is that you're just alone. That you've spent all this time building a life together as a tribe and then you're cut off from that and you're in a new place by yourself. That you have no sense of home. And that in a very, very tiny way, okay, is what we're talking about in this passage. That what has happened historically to the nation of Israel is that uh, God gave them this promised land, this place that they called home, and he said, this is, gonna be, this is gonna be a home for you. But the people of God turned their backs on God. And so what happened is that God sent them warning after warning after warning, and they refused to listen, and so God said, based on my promises, because of what I've promised you, I've got to take you out of this home to wake you up. And so there's this king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and we read about him in this passage. Uh, he came against Jerusalem and he conquered Jerusalem, the city of God. And what he did is he took away kind of the upper, uh, the upper crust of society. 
all their aristocrats, all their nobles, all of the best educated, all of the wealthiest people, and even kind of the middle class, all of the craftsmen that were in the city. He took them all away, and he brought them all back to Babylon. And, and this letter is sent to this group of exiles now who are living on the banks of this canal outside of the city of Babylon. And this group of people is wrestling with, it, it, was, the, it was potentially the most cataclysmic event in Jewish history to be taken out of their homeland. They're wondering, has God deserted us? Who are we now? They're living in a, in a world, in a culture where everything is new and different to them, where the language is different, where the customs of, are different, where the geography is different, where the climate is different. Everything is different, and they don't feel at home. There's no sense of home. They have a longing to go back, but they can't. And what they feel day in and day out is this sense of uprootedness. It's, it's hard for us to grasp, uh, for a lot of us to grasp, but really it's what people who have, uh, in a lot of ways, like changed cultures, who have moved cross-culturally experience. Like people who have immigrated from one country to another can kind of experience this kind of uprootedness. I'm in a place uh, that's totally different and, f- and foreign to me. And yet, at, at least kind of in the American narrative, right, what we want to be true is that people come here looking for something better and different. And that, that is not true about these exiles. They didn't leave their home for a better home. Uh, they were captured from their home and brought to live in the city of their captors. A little bit more like refugees. These are people who are living in exile. And what the biblical narrative would say to us, what, what scripture would tell us, is that that is actually our identity as the people of God. That, that we're to think of ourselves as exiles. Because it's true about us from the very beginning of the arc of biblical history. It's true all the way back in Genesis 3 that when Adam and Eve, because when sin enters the world, right, they're forced out of the garden, and they're now made exiles in a world that's hostile to them because of sin. That when God comes to Abraham, that he calls him out of a home and he says, I'm gonna give you a home, but you're actually not gonna know this home. You'll pitch your tents in that land, but it will not belong to you. It will belong to the people who will come after you and come from you. That Abraham was an exile. Here we see God's people in exile, and even the New Testament would encourage us Peter, in his letter to the church, he addresses the people of God as exiles. In his letter, he writes to them, dear so-and-so. He says, dear elect exiles. That what's true about us is that this world as it currently exists is not our home. But that we've not been left alone here, that we've been left with the promises and the presence of God as we navigate this world. Do you connect with that at all? With the feeling of being in exile? Or this world not being your home? Like I think about in my own life uh, moments of kind of gut-wrenching sadness and where the sadness that I experience reminds me that I am alive. 
and that I have loved people or loved things um, that are gone and that it's good that I've loved them. And yet I think, ah, it's not supposed to be this way. That that's, that's a symptom of exile. Or in those mountaintop moments of joy that we experience, maybe that you've experienced, and I don't know if you're like me, but there are moments where I, I get to those moments and I think, oh, this is so good, and yet it feels like there's still something that's missing. Have you ever had that experience? That's exile, right? That when you are working day after day after day and just in the grind of life, do any of you ever feel like that? Okay. Uh, And you think, man, does what I'm doing matter? That's a symptom of exile. Because what you were created for was to be in a world where what you were working toward didn't matter. That because sin is in the world, what God has said is now there are thorns and there are thistles, there are things that make our work and our daily living hard and make it feel futile. And what this passage reminds us, calls us into, is that we're a people who are in exile. This world is not our home. And and that it's important that we wrap our minds around that because when we do, it changes the way that we live. And it changes the way that we experience our exile. Because we're a people who live in that exile with promise. That those feelings of exile don't mean something is wrong. It, they mean that something is right. That yes, this world is not our home. We're going to talk about different ways that we see in this passage that the people of God are tempted to respond to being in exile. Okay, so the first... Oh, geez, I should have practiced the spelling beforehand. Is ass- does assimilation have one S or two? Who knows? Okay, As- one of them is assimilation, okay? And the other, the other is uh, isolation. Easier to spell. And that these are always the two ways that we are tempted to respond to our exile, either by assimilation or by isolation. You could almost kind of think of it as this kind of like spectrum. Okay, so assimilation is when we set our watches by the watches of the people around us. When we get our idea of what is right or wrong, what's true or not true, based on the world around us. The nation of Israel did this all the time. It's all throughout their history. That they would say, oh yeah, we worship God, and also Baal, Asherah, the gods of the people around us, right? And God says, no, 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 that's assimilation. That's, that's not what I've called you to. And there are all kinds of reasons that we would want to assimilate with the culture around us, right? Because we face that same temptation. That we are people who have a deep desire to be accepted. A deep desire to belong. And if we forget that we're exiles, what we'll do is we'll trade in everything about who our God is that is distinct in an effort to blend in with the people around us. And that can be for a lot of reasons, right? It's, it's to meet those needs of acceptance and belonging. It can be for, for achieving power or prestige. It can, be for, uh, it can be a way of getting money, right? That if, that if we are obtaining wealth, that if we trade in all these things that make us distinct, well, now we don't have the guardrails that keep us from this kind of uh, unguarded pursuit of, of wealth in our world. We could talk about it in all kinds of ways, the ways that we're tempted toward assimilation. 
And often, kind of the, the response to that, or, or, or the other way that we can be tempted to live is in isolation. And that's where the people of God are when they receive this letter. They're on the banks of this canal outside of Babylon, and they're not in Babylon because they're not gonna go in. They're saying to God, yeah, we get it, okay? That it's because of the assimilation before that we're out here, and so this time, there's gonna be no assimilation. We're gonna be totally isolated. We're gonna live outside the city. Did you ever feel that pull in your life? Man, it's a hard world. It's a broken world. It's a world that doesn't believe the things that I believe, and so I'm gonna push away from it. I'm gonna make myself separate from it. That's where we get all kinds of things like... uh, we can say, well, I'm gonna cre- we're going to create our own kind of insular Christian culture, right? Our own, our own movies, our own books, our own music, our own, our own, our own, our own, and we're going to keep out all of these negative influences. We're going to build walls around ourselves to keep ourselves safe. And we could talk about any number of issues in our world, right? Uh, and the ways that Christians are pulled toward one of these two poles. And often, they do them in reaction to each other, right? That uh, we see people who are isolated Christians, who are mean and who are hostile to the world around them, and so we say, well, I don't want to be like that, and we back away from that so far, we end up in here, right? Dropping anything that's distinct about what we believe, or that we're so afraid of this that we back ourselves into the isolation. And the passage that we're in this morning, it has a critique for both of these things. God rejects both of these ways of living and calls us to reject both of these ways of living. Let's look at that uh, in in the passage. In verse 14, okay, it says, "I I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. You can't come back from exile if you've stopped being a people, right? You still have to have your identity as a people to want to leave Babylon and go back to Jerusalem. So if you think about what we studied in Nehemiah, when the city is being rebuilt, when the people are finally allowed to go back to their land, there are people who don't want to go back to Israel. There are people who have totally assimilated. And what God is warning them against here is, no, you've got to keep your identity. That's why he says, go out and, like, still get married. But when he's saying get married, you know, marry each other, have families— He's saying do that within the context of the Old Testament law, which is marry people from within this community. Because keeping our identity is important. So don't, don't just assimilate. You're like, oh, well, then he must be calling them to isolation. No. God is very clear about not doing that either. And we see it in verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Guys, that is a sh- I'm going to start pointing at you with a marker. I'm getting fired up. That is a shocking thing for God to say, isn't it? These are the people who have just kidnapped these Israelites and brought them into their city. And God is saying, no, you seek the welfare of the very people who captured you. You think God in the Old Testament doesn't tell you to love your enemies? This is it right here. Same God. That's what he's telling them to do. Love your enemies. Pray for the people who have persecuted you. You can't seek the welfare of the city living in isolation. No, no, no. 
So where does that leave us? We're just trying to find, right, like the perfect middle right here. We're not assimilating, we're not isolating too much. I think it'd be interesting to talk about uh, where you think that we fall on this spectrum as a church. And that would probably tell you a lot about what you think about yourself, actually, right? The things that you're trying to guard against in your own hearts. And what, what, I, what I think this passage gives us is just a totally different way of, um, well, you know what, we'll keep it on here, okay. Isn't that cool, though, that it turns like that? Okay. Uh, that, that what we are called to do is to live uh, in distinction. Not assimilation, not isolation, but in distinction. That we'd be a people who are distinct from the world around us. What that means is that we are people who would be engaged lovingly and boldly holding on tightly to all that is true in the gospel and yet would be out loving the people around us, not putting up walls. That that is what we're called to as a church. That's what we're called to here in East Nashville. What does that look like, huh? There's an author I really like. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. And she was an English professor at Syracuse University, um, a member of the LGBTQ community when the AIDS epidemic was ravaging our nation. And she talks about it in, in her book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, what it was like to be a part of that community when that was going on. Just the constant uh, pain and struggle, the isolation, the fear, and the sense of community that grew up uh, amongst her and her friends because of what they were facing. And kind of as her life unfolded, it's a really interesting story, but Rosaria uh, became a follower of Jesus. And it totally changed her life and the way she identifies and kind of everything about her story. And the question that she asks, and it, it really has haunted me as I thought about it this week, is what would it have looked like? How would it have changed the world if the church had embraced its call to be a distinct community in the middle of that crisis for her community? What if rather than pushing away, what the church had done is had, had come close? What if the church had been the people bringing the meals and sitting at hospital beds and holding hands and grieving with and being sorrowful with uh, people who were being ravaged by this disease? What would that have said to our world? What would that have said to the people who are suffering? That is a kind of bold, courageous love, isn't it? A, a love, a gospel love that is strong, not just in words, but in action. That that kind of bold, courageous, distinct love is the kind of love that we're called to. Because that kind of love, it takes courage, doesn't it? If you think about even the ways that we, um, our stories that we tell in our movies and our books, the I love you moment in a romantic relationship is always potentially f is fraught, right? It's so scary to tell someone I love you because what if the person doesn't say it back? That asking someone on a date is so scary because what if you ask them and they don't want to go? 
that what we understand on kind of a, a, a small level is that through those things is that love is, is, it takes boldness and courage. Pursuing love takes those things. But to some degree, we expect that stuff in our lives or, or want those things, to be asked on dates, to be told I love you. To be loved by a neighbor in your life? Who expects that? Who has a category for that? And so to be called into that kind of, of bold gospel, uh, Jesus-oriented love toward the people around you who aren't expecting it? Yeah. That's the kind of love that takes boldness, that takes courage, that's distinct from the world around us. I just want to spend a few minutes talking about what that could look like for us as a community. That one of the, one of the ways we want that to play itself out in the life of our community is in service is in how we serve the world around us as individual people and as the church. And it's something that you guys uh, have been doing over the past year, over the past years, uh, in a lot of different ways. I think we have a slide for this. Can I get the service slide up on the screen? Okay. So these are all the things that you guys have been doing uh, this last year as a congregation. So we provided 1,200 snack bags to Stratford High School during exam weeks so that kids who were on or kids who didn't have, kids who count on student lunches uh, could go home with food because they weren't being served lunch at school those days. But the first Saturday of every month, we have a group of people from this congregation who cooks and serves a hot meal to people in our community who are living without housing. That we had a work day here at this church where we loved this community by caring for this space. You guys picked up over a, a hundred stockings uh, and stuffed them for people who are living just a few, a few miles down the road in Napier uh, for them to, to give out at Christmas. We've got six of our discipleship groups who are connected with teachers at Stratford who are asking that teacher, what do you need and how can we help and serve you? As a community, I know if you guys know we did this. Uh, we bought uh, a new coffee maker for the teacher's lounge at Stratford and provided them with the pods that they wanted and they were uh, pumped about it. So got an Amazon wish list for the East National Cooperative Ministry to support their ongoing needs, and plenty of other projects uh, like we talked about for those teachers that have been adopted, which included serving a hot meal to the Stratford High football team before one of their home games this last year. But this is the work that you guys have been involved in, and this is the work that we want to do more of as a community. We have a, we've had a service committee for the last year uh, trying to build relationships and figure out how are we going to serve our community more uh, more in the next year. And I'm excited for that. I'll, I'll tell you guys, we need more, we need help with that committee. Uh, and here's what we really need very specifically, is that Stratford High has, to, when we ask Stratford High, hey, where do you need help? They say, everywhere. <laughs> that is actually what they've said. What can we do? Anything. Okay. That is good to know, right? But, but that's hard to action. And that it takes um, a significant investment of time to figure out very specifically how are we going to move in an actionable way toward loving the students and the staff and the administrators and the support staff at that school really well. And that we need two or three people who can help us do that. Who can invest the time to figure out what the needs are and then have the, 
um, the organizational prowess to say, and here's our plan. Who can bring that to us? And we can say, yes, let's do it. And then then as a community that we would respond to those things. You've got these cards sitting on your pews. Everyone look down. You see them. They have a cute plot twist. They have a QR code on them. Uh, and those, uh, there's, there are ways there for you to get signed up for a, a list um, that's just like a text chain. And that when we get kind of immediate needs that can be acted on service-wise, this is a text thread that we want to be able to text and have people respond to. Because reading, your e- reading email is just a hard thing to do. It's a bad way to communicate, right? This is a little bit more direct of a way. So if that's something you're interested in, is being texted when there are immediate needs that we could respond to as a community, you can sign up for the texts that way. And that's, that's kind of one angle on what it looks like for us to seek the welfare of the city that we're a part of. One of the other, I think, angles for this or, or ways this can look, uh, another way of thinking about this, is that we would be a hospitable community. That we would be a hospitable community. That would be a way that we would be able to seek the welfare of our city. That we would be a people who are hospitable uh, with our hearts that we would be welcoming with our hearts, and that what that would mean is that we would be people who would be welcoming with our homes. And what hospitality does, guys, is that it totally reframes what it means for us to seek the welfare, to love our city well. Because so often when we hear uh, seek the welfare of our city, whoever hears that out in their world, okay? But when we think about that idea, right, of like loving our city, what we think of is uh, programs and politics and public policy. And those things are important, okay? Those things matter. And having Jesus influence the way that we think about those things, that matters. What also matters are relationships. In Acts, in one of his sermons, Paul talks about how God has placed us in exactly the places he desires us to live. That he's provided the boundaries of our lives in time and in space. That's true for you. Which means the street that God has placed you on is exactly the street that he wants you on. That's true. what is our city but a collection of streets, right? Streets that make up neighborhoods that make up our city. And the way that we would love our city is by loving our neighborhood of East Nashville, which would look like us loving our streets. That when Jesus says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, and he gets asked, well, who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is not not your neighbor, right? Your neighbor is not not your neighbor. Your neighbor is your neighbor, Yes, it's also more than that, yes. But when did that start excluding the people that we actually live next door to, right? If you, just, if you think about the street that you live on, if it's true about the street I live on, it's, I think it's true all over East Nashville, that you are on your street, there is all kinds of diversity, isn't there? And that's true ethnically, it's true socioeconomically, it's true educationally, it's true with the length of time people have lived in East Nashville. I've got people living on my street who are living in homes that have been built in the last five years. I am one of them, okay? 
I've got people living on my street who are living in the home they grew up in as a child. What? On my street, all, and everything in between. And it turns out that loving the people on my street is actually a way of loving a huge cross-section of our community. The chances are that it's true for you. What if, okay, just picture this with me. Uh, just this conversation happening between, between two friends who live in East Nashville. So maybe they're sitting at Ugly Mugs, right, and they're talking. And someone says, oh, I just moved to a new street. And they tell them the street. And their friend would say to them, oh, that's amazing. I know someone who lives on that street, and that person goes to Midtown East Nashville. And what that means is that you just got a killer neighbor. Right? Like, what if that is, what if that is how we were known in our community? That, that, you would, that you would be, that we would be the kind of neighbors who, when someone on our street is having like a, pro- a problem, that they would want to come and talk to us about it. Because what they would know is that they would be received with love and with care and with compassion. That when someone on our street is experiencing like a f- they have a physical need, like they're sick or something and they need their dog walked, or a meal, or someone to pick up their kids, that they would say, oh, you know who I can ask? I can ask that person down the street who goes, maybe they wouldn't say who goes to Midtown East, but they would, they would want to ask one of us because we would be that, those kinds of neighbors who are deeply invested in the well-being of the people who are living right around us who are in relationship with those people. That what we would see is our neighbors become our friends that we would have friends who become like family to us and that that family would become like the family of, that family would become the family of God. That that's what we long to see. And that regardless of where, where people stand uh, with the Lord, that what they would experience from us is the love and compassion of Jesus. That it would be so real to us that it would be what we're giving out to the people around us all the time. And I could talk about what that could look like for days, but we don't have days this morning, okay? We just have a few more minutes, so I will just tell you this. Um, we've been trying to figure out how to live like this as a family for a while, and it's pretty hard. We've had a lot of kind of starts and stops along the way. And as we lived in Nashville, every time we've moved to a new house, we're like, this time, we're gonna, we're gonna do it, really. We're gonna be neighbors. And it's taken several false starts. Uh, and I, th- I feel like we still struggle with it, to know, like, what does this look like? But I will tell you, a great place to start is uh, knowing the names of the people on your street. It's hard to love them and care for, it's hard to love and care for people and be in a relationship with them if you don't know their name. So on our fridge, we have a map of our street, and we have little boxes for the houses, and next to them we've got people's names and the names of their pets, because that's also very important. Uh, and after living in our house three years, we know most people's names. And then after living in our house three years, there are some people who we have friendships with, which has been so sweet. And guys, this is where it gets just bonkers, okay? And becomes really an adventure. That once you know people's names and you know what's happening in their life, you could actually invite them, we could invite them into our homes. Not like out for dinner, but over for dinner. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That is too much, right? It's too personal. 
that passage that we read a few weeks ago in Acts where the people are being added to their number daily, where they're devoted to all of these things that are of the Lord. It says that they were doing all of this devoting in the temple and in their homes. That these, these places that God has given us, uh, these homes that God has given us, he's given it to us to share as a way of opening up our hearts to the people around us. Can we be a community that in the midst of our exile, right? So much to say, okay. That knowing our identity as exiles is so helpful here because it allows us to live for something different. That it allows us to say all the things that we're trying to protect and chase and hold on to that are all about us, that we can set those things down to actually see and engage the people around us because we know that this place is not our home and that we have a home that's coming. And so that all of the awkwardness and the uncomfortability, uncomfortability of inviting other people into our homes now is okay. It's okay. It's worth it. Because, because we have a home that's coming. And where that brings us, friends, is to the communion table this morning. That what we find at the communion table is the ultimate example of hospitality. That that. At the communion table, what we find is that God himself went into exile on our behalf. That we find a Jesus who left his heavenly home to come and be with us here in our home. And that what we see Jesus doing in his life and in his ministry over and over again is moving toward people, right? In, in service, in his healing, in the, in the ways that he loved them. And what we see is that he opens up his heart to them that he invites them and he has invited us to come to him. That he's invited people who are needy, who are broken, uh, people who are lonely, people who are experience deep shame, people who are full of sin, people who are full of doubts, people whose lives have been marked by deep pain. In short, it's people like us. That he's invited them to come to him and that he invites us to come and to eat with him. To find nourishment and spiritual life as we connect with him. And that that connection isn't based on anything that we have done to earn that, but is out of his free grace and love. It's his gift to us. And that's what we celebrate here at the communion table. So if you, if you guys want, you can fold down the kneelers that are in front of you. You don't have to, but if you want to use them uh, for this portion, you can. Um, here's what's going to happen in just a minute. I'm going to give you some time to, uh, to reflect. I'll pray for us, give you time to reflect. Um, this is a time where you can ask the Lord, Lord, what are the ways that I have been rejecting your hospitality in my life? Which is another way, if we would think about, another way of thinking about sin. Right, what are the ways that I have forgotten the fact that I'm an exile and that I've been living either in assimilation or in isolation? Lord, would you show me those things? Lord, I'm going to lay those things down. That in this time of reflection, it's a space for you to experience the love and the grace of Jesus Christ for you. His desire to meet you in your pain and your suffering and your sin and your shame and his desire to feed you and nurture you. And there'll be a song that we'll sing kind of as, as we do that. And then I'll come up and we'll take the bread together. There'll be another moment for reflection. We'll sing another song. We'll come up and we'll take the juice together and then we'll sing two songs in, uh, in celebration after that.
And guys, as we engage in this meal, there are two warnings that I have to give you because Scripture gives them to us, because Paul gives them to us. And the warnings are that if there are parts of your heart that you were saying to Jesus, I'm not welcoming fellowship with you there, if you're rejecting his hospitality in a certain area of your life, then this table is not for you right now. Because when he comes into feast with us, he wants all of us. And if you're here and uh, you're not a follower of Jesus, then this table is not for you right now. That we long for, he longs for the day where he gets to share this meal with you. I will just tell you, uh, that meal is not for you yet. That's for those who have said, uh, yeah, Jesus, I, I need you uh, to bring me into fellowship with yourself. Uh, but for those of us who are sinful, who are needy, who are broken, who are full of shame and pain, this table is for us as we come and bring our full selves. So let me pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word where we ask that you would be uh, making us a people who can love our city boldly. Uh, and Lord, we know that's only possible as we have experienced your bold love in our own hearts. And so Lord, as we come uh, to you at this table, we pray that you would meet us with your bold love. I pray that you'd be comforting my friends, that you'd be meeting us in our sin and in our shame, Lord, uh, in our deep loneliness desire for connection uh, and ministering to us with your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.